Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Well, good morning, everyone. This is Matt Chancy with back with another episode of the Tax Alpha podcast. And on today's podcast, we have a special guest. It is David Barnett. And David Barnett likes to refer to himself as a, uh, a recovering business broker. So, um, you know, I'm interested. I got to know what he's talking about there. So, David, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I call myself a recovering business broker because I was I was in the the field as a business broker for a little over three years. I sold 36 companies during that time. And it was the worst business I have ever been involved with in my life. And I'm more than happy to unpack that for everyone listening. But I, I learned a lot while doing that. And it helped me build the business that I have today, which is still helping people buy and sell businesses, but in a very, very different format. All right. Well, that's, uh, you know, we all, I believe that we all like to learn things as we go through this process. It's iterative. We get better as we go. But mm -hmm. to actually say that there was a defining moment in the sand where you drew the line and said, I've got to do this in a different way, you know, uh, certainly brings out some curiosity. So tell me about that. Well, sure. So th the way that I got into business brokerage, uh, just to give you a quick background, I, I, I studied business because I was always interested in business and I thought that business school would make me into a businessman. Uh, around the third year, I realized they were trying to turn me into what I now call a Fortune 500 bureaucrat, You know, the, like one of these middle managers. And you're sitting around doing case studies about General Electric and GM and stuff. And my heart really was over on with the businesses that you see when you're driving down the street, you know, the, the everyday businesses that we see, what I call now main street businesses. And so when I got out of school, I, I got a job with the Yellow Pages, which was really foundational for me in my education because I had to go sit down and talk with the owners and managers of all of these businesses that we're talking about and asking them what kind of customers they were looking for and finding out about their business model and how they made money, et cetera. But the writing was on the wall. I mean, this was the end of the 90s. I could see that the internet was going to have an impact on this, and that the printed yellow page book wasn't going to be the, the, the juggernaut of local information the way it once was for forever, right? And so I left and I got into business on my own with a partner, um, eventually sold that business and started to broker commercial debt for small businesses. And so I was helping to arrange capital and operating leases, uh, bank lines of credit, um, all kinds of different factoring facilities for the sale of accounts receivable. And I was helping business owners get access to capital to grow or expand, uh, in particular when the bank said no. And my biggest source of referral were, in fact, the bankers. And so I would make good relationships with them because if a small business owner goes into a bank and the banker can't help them, and then they go to the next bank and that banker will help them, it's only a matter of time before retirement accounts, car loans, mortgages, et cetera, migrate over to that other bank. And so I would explain to bankers that I use leasing companies and other kinds of specialized finance providers that don't do all that other stuff. And so I was quite successful in building up a business, doing this brokerage, and then something very strange happened on Wall Street around 2009. And about half of these alternative lenders I was using went out of business because they were packaging up these loans into some kind of paper and they were selling that to the markets. And then, of course, that, that all came to a screeching halt. And one of the things I noticed when I was doing that is that people were coming to me looking for money to help buy existing operating businesses. And I was just blown away by the apparent and complete lack of professionalism, understanding, or capability that I was seeing amongst the intermediaries trying to put these deals together. And, you know, there is something called a business broker. Anyone really can call themselves a business broker, but other people try to do this too. You know, real estate agents sometimes try to do it. Sometimes CPAs and attorneys try to do it when they're not within the realm of their familiar area of expertise. And so I saw all kinds of bad deals where people were losing sizable deposits. People were doing deals without any consideration in the contract to things like operating capital and just 
after the deals were done within a very short period of time became obvious to the buyer that something was very, very wrong. So I was meeting some of these people, observing some of these deals go sideways. And I thought I can contribute here. So I joined with one of the big franchise brand names in business brokerage because they gave me access to training. I knew enough about finance and sales and business to know that I was incomplete, that I needed to learn more. And so I got access to training and I was able to get uh, my professional designation to help people buy and sell businesses. And eventually had my own office. And in, so in the in a little over three years, I owned the office. I sold 36 companies for other people. And if you looked at my year-end financials from that business, you would see 30, 40, 50% year-over-year growth. And you would think, wow, David is on fire. He's doing well. But what the financial statements wouldn't accurately demonstrate is that in each of those years, I had droughts with no closing of seven, eight, nine months at a stretch with no deal closings, no commission checks coming in, but all of the overheads of the office going out. I had three associates. I had an administrative person. I had a 1,500-square-foot office with a boardroom. It all looked very nice, very professional. Um, and it helped me secure a lot of clients that I was working with. Um, but when you go nine months of paying those bills with nothing really coming in, um, you start to question whether or not the business that you're in makes any sense at all. And so then at the end... I was heading into the fall of 2011, and so we were still feeling the impacts of that great recession at this time. I had six deals set to close that were going to bring a quarter million dollars of commission in. One of them fell apart because a bank rescinded a finance letter. Another one fell apart because it was a regulated industry and the government agency wouldn't issue a license to the buyer. A third one fell apart because it was a franchise business and the buyer and the franchisor met and had their meetings with each other. And they were total jerks to the buyer. And he said, I love this business and I like the seller and I'd like to help him out, but I will not get into bed with those guys. And so that deal fell apart. So what I began to really appreciate is that I could do everything I needed to do and I could have a well-prepared seller who was ready for a reasonable offer and understood what the terms were likely going to be. I could have really well-prepared buyers that were very well-qualified had equity to invest, good credit, et cetera. And there's this periphery of other service providers around them who could either purposefully or inadvertently or accidentally throw a wrench into the whole deal and the whole thing just wouldn't work. And all of the people involved in the deal, including the buyer and seller, you know, the, the buyer usually already owned a business or had some kind of employment income. So if the deal was delayed or didn't close, they continued to get that income. The seller of a profitable business, if there's a delay, they just enjoy owning a profitable business for longer. Sure. Uh, the, the bankers, the lawyers, the accountants have other clients, other means of support. So they're all still earning money too. The only person who gets really put into a pinch when a deal is delayed or falls apart is the broker. And so that's when I just realized this is crazy. So I, I sold the office to an associate. And uh, basically on a note saying that if he closed any of the deals I had opened, I would get a cut of those commissions. And uh, I became a banker. So I was, I was a banker for a few years. And during that time, my phone kept ringing and it was people that had been given my name for uh, as a guy who could help on, on business deals, or they were past buyers or sellers reaching back out to me, looking for help on things they were trying to do. And I just kept saying, no, I don't do that anymore. I don't do that anymore. Until finally, this guy uh, named Bob called me who had been a, a buyer uh, prospect when I had my brokerage open. And he was just explaining how he was working on this deal. And he was getting advice from his CPA and from his attorney. And they were kind of giving him the end game, but they weren't really able to coach him through the stick handling of what he had to do. And I said, Bob, I have a full-time job. I could help you, but I'm not a broker. I guess I, I could charge you like a consultant. And he said, where do you live? And I gave him my address. And he said, great, I'll be there Saturday at nine. And that was the beginning of me kind of doing some side consulting. And within a short period of time, about a year and a half, the bank started to reorganize and I could see that packages were going to be offered. And I kind of raised my hand and said, you know, I'd look at one of those. And that was about five years ago. And that launched my full-time consulting practice. And, and I call myself a private transaction advisor because I work as a consultant with both buyers and sellers to help them look at deals. And I basically leverage the experience I gained during my business broker days 
And I'm in the envious position where because I'm working on so many deals with so many people, I'm looking at all of these different deals on a continuous basis. And it just, while I'm able to help people, it's also helping to develop me professionally as well because my experience gets to grow. And then on top of that, I have a few books that I've written and some online education programs and things like that. And finally, a coaching program for buyers where people that are working together in a group and they learn from each other as they work on their deals, kind of a, a front row seat to observing a deal happening. And so that's what I do. And I promote myself through YouTube and um, you know, get a ton of really heartwarming emails from people who say, Dave, because of this thing I learned on your video, I was able to avoid a bad deal or I saved myself some money or saved myself some time. And it's not just buyers avoiding bad deals. It's equally people on the sell side avoiding the different mishaps and hazards that they face when something happens and they decide they need to exit. Nice. Nice. So you're not functioning based on the transaction anymore. It's it's an education-based model where you're coaching people the things that you learn all the way, but the the triggering event of the actual sale is not the thing that monetizes for you per se in the way that you've yeah. structured it now. So, you know, I announced that happily because what what is happening is I I disin I I'm no longer incentivized by the close. And so what that means when I'm working with buyers is I'm I'm not hesitant at all to let them know when the deal they're working on is terrible or or has certain problems or that they should withdraw. You know, if you were to go to a car salesman and ask what the best options were for getting around, they would likely not tell you to get a bus pass. <laughs> Probably not, right? Right. And so on top of that, I kind of limit myself to the area that I work in. So I stay on Main Street and the way that I define the different categories of businesses, because different people from different spaces are going to use different uh, terminology. And, you know, there's a book out there from, I think it's from Harvard Business Review about buying small businesses. But in the very introduction, they talk about a small business being one with a revenue of $10 million. And so in my world, that's not a small business at all. That's actually in the mid-market, right? And so I define a small business as one that has an EBITDA roughly of under half a million. And it can it can change depending on the industry where that cutoff line is. But what I'm trying to define with that definition is the lowest range at which private equity might be interested in that particular industry. So uh, once you have a business that's big enough for professional investors to be interested in buying, the dynamics, the pricing, and the way the deals are made changes. Below that line, you're typically talking about um, individual buyers, most of which want to become an owner-operator. And they're buying not just a business. They're not just making an investment. They're also, in a lot of cases, buying a job too, because they're going to step into that lead role. And often in that space, the seller is the operator as well. So you've got two, an entrepreneur who wants to pass the torch to another person with similar characteristics, knowledge, background in a lot of cases, especially if it's a technically oriented business. That whole Michael Gerber business owner versus technician in this space, some of the new owners need to bring technical knowledge. You know, I've, I've often give the example that you can have the world's most profitable flower shop, but the process engineer probably isn't going to buy it. They're, they're going to be buying something that relates more to their engineering background. Okay. Interesting. So sounds like you kind of, um, gravitated a little bit more towards the the buy side than the sell side. You, you said you work on both, but I heard the way that you kind of talked about it a little bit. So, you know, what made you kind of move towards the buy side more? Is there more opportunity? Are there more mistakes that people are making? Are the mistakes more catastrophic on the buy side? Like what kind of move forced your hand that way a little bit? The demand is greater. So people who are interested in buying a business are spending time trying to learn about buying a business. And so they end up you know, buying books on the topic, they end up online asking questions, they listen to podcasts, they, they, they want to learn about it. Whereas most of the operators in this space are not busy online learning about business, they're busy operating. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them have this, in some cases, false assumption that when they decide to sell their business, they're just going to be able to sell it. 
And so it's oftentimes when they get to the point where they need to sell and then they start to run into some kind of difficulty in executing that plan that then they start to go online and start to try to learn and educate themselves a little more. Um, you know, it's, it's funny when I first joined Yellow Pages, uh, there was a more senior gentleman that I was working with, uh, probably 30 years older than me. And I was excited to get out there and meet these business owners because I thought I was going to be meeting a bunch of like junior Ford and Carnegie's and, you know, Rockefeller's <laughs> out there in the world. And, and he said, listen, listen, kiddo. He said, let me tell you about our clients. And he said, you know, about 30% of them um, own a business because they can't find a job. And another 30% of them own a business because no one will hire them. And another 30% own a business because they won't work for anyone. And he said that all might sound the same, but they're very different. They're, they're, those are three very different characters. Right. He used the word character. And, and you can imagine like when you start to think about a lot of small businesses that the word character, I think is probably perfect. And he said one in 10 is someone who considers their business an asset and they got into it because they saw a need in the market and they thought they could deliver a product or service and satisfy demand and build a business that would earn a cash flow. Like one, one in 10 would meet the criteria of what you think a business owner is. And so it's interesting because I, I'll do talks and education sessions for mastermind groups of business owners and things like this. And they represent that tiny sliver of people who are forward thinking. They're trying to work on their business in that Michael Gerber e-myth sense of the word. And they want to learn from a guy like me because they want to make sure that when their businesses, when they want to sell that they're ready to go. Sure. Most of those other people, the other 90%, they're worried about returning the calls on their voicemail, right? And they're worried about taking care of the customers or the problem they have with an employee and, and the day-to-day the -day of it. The reality in the main street space is that businesses sell for very low multiples. So the valuations are low, which means that there's never truly an incentive to cash out people will buy a business in this space with the idea of growing it into the type of business that a private equity group might be interested in. And then you start to talk about, you know, potentially selling at some kind of great windfall, right? But that takes a lot of strategy, planning, effort, and intentionality. Most of the businesses that exist in the main street space, the owner will work like crazy to build it up to the point where it starts to satisfy their lifestyle cash flow demands. And then the pressure comes off. Because for a lot of them, they've then satisfied the reason why they got into business, which might have been to support themselves and their family, right? They, yeah. they get to that comfort level and then, and then they're good. They, they stop being so aggressive. They stop chasing things the way they once did, especially when loans get paid off and they no longer have bankers kind of nipping at their heels for payments and demanding to see the annual financial statements and things like that. And so- why then would somebody ever sell one of these small businesses that provides for them and isn't really worth a whole lot in the sense of finance and you know business values and stuff? There's five reasons why people sell in my experience. And the biggest one is burnout, boredom, and fatigue. So you can imagine if you had a job for 10 or 12 or 15 years that you didn't really enjoy after a while, you'd say, geez, I'm, I'm tired of this. I want to do something else that employed person would start looking for a new job, new career. But when you own a business and a lot of your family's net worth is tied up in that, then you need to sell. You need to release some of that value so that you can go and do the other thing. So there's that boredom one. Then there's divorce, a health concern, the need to relocate, and finally retirement. So the, the thing about that list of five items is that only one of them is planned for. The other four are simply life circumstances. And so a lot of these business owners will be operating their business every day. They'll be worried about operations. They'll be doing one, two, three things to try to satisfy customer needs. Um, they'll not be focused on building the, the systems and the business into a point where it's going to be such a, a wonderfully sought after thing in the market. And they may not be paying very close attention, or they may intentionally be doing things that they figure might reduce their tax burden. For example, they've got all the, all their teenage children are on company cell phone plans and that kind of thing. And they, they see the immediate gain of doing something like that, but they don't think about what that's going to mean during a due diligence process when some buyer comes looking and they're trying to claim that the earnings are higher than what the you know tax return says. And, and so those are the people that will often get caught 
and they have that pressing personal concern. So now how do they sell and make a deal that's reasonable? Because once that pressing personal concern starts to have an impact on their day-to-day, the effect on the owner operator is going to have an effect on the employees and it will start to affect the P&L and the balance sheet. You know, a small business that's owner operated needs an owner who is pushing every day, who wants things to be done right. And that feeling, that enthusiasm rubs off on the employees. When the owner stops caring, the employees realize that the caring is, is not there. They change their behavior sometimes with the way they relate to each other and to the customers. And then once you have a period of that or two, then you start to have the dip. And now all of a sudden, anyone who looks at this business is concerned that, wow, now I'm buying a business in decline, right? And that's not good. So, so I always tell sellers, like when the moment is at the, when the decision is made, I need to sell this because I don't want to be here anymore. Then we actually are moving towards a process where things need to move quickly before the, any kind of impact can occur on the business so we can tell the best story possible. And for sellers, it means setting expectations. You know, I meet, unfortunately, with a lot of sellers who've had their business for sale with a business broker for a couple of years. They, in many markets that are competitive, business brokers will sometimes act like real estate agents in their marketing. They'll say, I can get you the highest value for your business, right? But a business's value is determined by its cash flow. And so if a broker gets someone excited that they can get a higher price, but the price isn't realistic, then a reasonable buyer who comes along and makes a reasonable offer, that offer is probably not going to be accepted. And so I've met sellers who've had a business for sale for two years. They'll hire me to look over the work that their broker's done to look at the package or what have you. And I'll come back to them and say, look, this business is way overpriced. It's overpriced by about 40%. Furthermore, you know, your expectation that someone's just going to borrow all the money and pay you cash, that's not a realistic expectation. You know, here are the assets within your business. A reasonable offer for your business would have like a certain buyer down payment, maybe some bank financing, but you're going to have to carry some paper on this deal. Like maybe you'd have to carry 20 or 30% for five years or so, and you may have to postpone those payments to the banker. And I've had more than one person say to me, oh my God, I got an offer like that a year and a half ago but I didn't know it was reasonable. Their, their expectations had not been properly set and they missed their opportunity mm-hmm. to deal with that reasonable buyer. The other, the other thing that happens when you overprice a business is that um, the reasonable buyers will simply not engage with you. Yeah. The, the, the People who nowadays, people who want to buy a business, remember they've been online for the last three years reading, reading books about the industry. They have an idea of what the businesses should sell for. And when they see something that's way out of line, they're just going to think, you know, that person's not reasonable. Why am I going to spend my time trying to readjust their expectations? I should just wait or, or I'll go look for something better. Yeah. No, I, I don't disagree at all. We were, you know, I was looking at buying, I've, I'm constantly looking at opportunities myself and had an opportunity that I was looking at recently. And in the process of discovery and learning more about the business and the, and the opportunity, liked the opportunity, realized I didn't like any of the people. And, I, you know, like, don't like them, don't trust them, you know, not exactly sure what they're up to. They're not wired like me. And as soon as like the, we lost momentum and it kind of stalled out a little bit, for me, that was enough to kind of like walk away. I was like, ah, I don't love it anyway. You know, I don't, these people are just not, you know, uh, and uh, and they're like, no, we want you to re-engage. And I'm like, yeah, you know, when we lost momentum on that whole thing, like you, you lost me, you know, so um Totally understand. And that's sad. And in your story that you just gave, you know, you said two things. Number one, it's better to sell the business when everybody's excited about the business and it has momentum and it hasn't lost it yet. And that poor seller um, missed a deal 18 months prior because he didn't know how it should be structured. So by that point, his revenue has probably fallen and his spirits yep. were down a little bit and it was impacting the cash flows of the business in a negative way. And, and you know, now he's still got to keep a good game face on about that to try to sell the thing when you know, because it's probably really disheartening to sit on the market for a long period of time and think, gosh, nobody values my thing the way that I value my thing. Right. So, well, yeah. And, and, and the valuation is, is a big, 
black hole for a lot of these operators. Um, you know, and and unfortunately, I've I've met financial planners, for example, who have entrepreneur clients, and they'll ask them, you know, what's your plan with the business? And the the person will say, well, I'm going to sell the business, and they might talk for ten or fifteen minutes about what it might sell for, and they'll put that number into a plan, and then a decade goes by. And they never revisit, they never engage with any kind of professionals to look at the business, to assess whether it's really sellable or if it will really sell for that price. And then you end up with someone who had this placeholder in their retirement plan. Mm -hmm. And now you're starting to talk about maybe it's not real and that can throw their whole plan off. And it it can be scary. I very often say to people, I'll occasionally run into people online who will talk about this idea of like flipping a business or buying and selling and all this kind of thing. And really, because the multiples are so low in general in the in the main street business space, the meat is not in the exit. The meat is in the ownership and operation. If you have a good, profitable small business that's earning you a few hundred thousand dollars a year, you know, if you're going to exit, you might get two and a half, close to three times that. Well, you're going to have that money in the next two or three years, right? So right. obviously, the best outcome would simply be to keep to own it for 10, right? Because yep. you, you'll just continuously earn that money. And the, the, the really clever owners are the ones who bring in all those systems and methodologies and control and KPIs, and, and they develop what I call the regional manager skill set. Um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll meet people who are looking at a business and it'll say absentee owner. And when you get into the weeds, you realize, well, it's a transmission shop in Pennsylvania and the owner is in Florida for eight months of the year, but he ran it himself for 25 years right? as the manager. And so he can have an hour of conversation with his current manager every week and understand everything going on in there, even if he doesn't have all of the proper systems in place, because he understands the business intimately. If you don't have the same background, you can't buy that business and run it the same way he is because you don't have that skill set. And so I always tell people, imagine a local gas station chain. You know, every location has a manager, but those managers don't run it for a year and present financials to head office. They have someone that who's overlooking them, some kind of regional manager who might be looking at 20 or 30 locations. And that manager is looking at certain numbers from each store that are going to raise red flags when there's something going on that's wrong so that they can step in and start to, to have a, an impact or give some more uh, micro direction to that manager to help help address things. And that's the skill set that an owner needs to develop so that they can step out of it and not just rely on their own familiarity, but actually develop a set of tools where they can look once a week on some kind of report. You know, it might be you know, how many inquiries are received online and through telephone, how many walk-ins for a retail store, what the average ticket is, you know, average return rate. It's all going to vary depending on the industry, but that scorecard is going to allow the owner to see quickly what is happening in the location. And if all those systems are in place, that then becomes a huge benefit in a sale because you can show a buyer, this is what I have in place and this is what it lets me do. Um, a lot of times though, these small business people don't have the skill sets for that evolution. And there are a lot of people out there who are buying businesses that are owner operated and, and they're bringing that skill set to the table. And they end up in the business for a few months, building those tools before they can get that manager in place and step back out. Well, one of the big things that I love about this whole space, Matt, is that I believe it's the, the most opaque and dysfunctional market for anything that there is because every single business is unique to some degree. There's no commodity in it unless you want to like talk about subway franchises or, or maybe gas stations might be all very similar. Right. But for the most part, most businesses are all very unique. They have their own sort of things going on and the buyers and sellers in the market are all bringing in entirely different sets of expectations or belief sets or desires or ambitions, whatever it is they want to do. And so it's it's just, and, and then there are these crazy outliers that happen too. Um, you know, everyone hears a story at the country club of some person who sold their business at what seems to be a very high price. 
But nobody sits down and explores that transaction. Was it a strategic acquisition from a bigger outfit that had other reasons for buying it? Or was it a person who made $2 million on their house in California and didn't know any better and wrote a check? Right. Because right. both of those things happen. That's and, right. but, but, they, but they aren't the basis then for what reasonably someone else should be able to expect to do. Right. Yeah. That happens in, I think in real estate transactions all the time, right? You have, you know, somebody prices it based on the comps and everything out there and the math and it makes sense. But then you got some buyer that walks in from a different sub market and, you know, one of the the husband or the wife get emotional about it. They see an aspect of it they like. And the next thing you know, they either don't do any research, don't think about it at all, or just assume the price that was put on it is justifiable in that market and just pay for it. Right. So, uh, you see people overbidding, but you, you make some interesting points. You know, you talk, you know, Michael Gerber, you've referenced a couple of times, you mm-hmm. know, his, you know, key, you know, message, I think, or theme is, you know, you have to work on the business, not just in the business. And I think that's hard for a lot of people because, you know, when you go back to the three types of people that typically own a business, except for that, that 10% of an entrepreneurial, they were just looking for a really good job, you know, something that they enjoy doing, at least they could do it for themselves. Right. And so when they get to that point where like they're comfortable and the stress and the pressure is not on them anymore and they're not figuring it all out, they've been doing it for a while, then, then, Hey, you know, why keep pushing? Why turn it into a global enterprise or anything when you've got the quality of life that you want out of it, you know, especially, especially when I I mean, when you're right, they're not going to get like a 20 X multiple on the back when they sell it anyway. So the amount of money that they're going to peel out of it on an exit is probably not going to be enough to replace the income that they had from a lifestyle while they owned it in the first place. So why, why do that? Right. What, one of the, one of the first books that I read that really helped me gain my perspective was written by Ed Pendarvis, who, who created Sunbelt business brokers and right. it's the family business, the family farm. And in that book, he basically demonstrates that the modern small business is really just the equivalent of what the family farm was a century ago, where most people lived on a family farm and enjoyed the fruits of that lifestyle. They had you know, their own apples and they had their own garden and, and they were doing things like they would, they would take a pig to the butcher and then they have a big barbecue and invite all the baseball families over you know, from the little league team. And they would enjoy all this lifestyle, but none of that stuff would ever be on the books. But when they right. took in the big harvest and delivered the grain to the grain elevator, they'd get one big check and they'd bring that to the bank. And that would be the money that would be on their tax return, right? Yeah. Kind of demonstrating that, you know, this sort of subsistence lifestyle entrepreneurialism that you see on Main Street businesses is, is really just an extension of that old, you know, family farmstead lifestyle that really is a foundation of of you know, the settled Western world, right? You know, people went out to, to make their mark and build their own um, opportunity. And, and, and this is just continuing today with businesses. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't, don't disagree. I know, you know, I have a lot of friends that, I mean, I guess everybody defines what a, what a business is differently to them. Right. You know, some, like you said, many times it's just a glorified job. It's not per se a business. But, but. Well, it's great that you say that you, that you mentioned the definition of a business because I, um, because I work in this space, I spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. So, so one of the things that I teach people is that you can classify these things as businesses, jobs, and hobbies. And basically, it comes down to what we call the seller's discretionary cash flow. So if you work in a business, all of the money that's available to you, if you work in it full time, we call that the SDE, seller's discretionary earnings, basically because you get to direct it. It's either invested in something or you take it home as a paycheck or what have you. And if that SDE figure basically allows you to have the same income as you would if you were employed in that industry as a manager in someone else's company, then I say that's not a business, that's a job and you own a job. If that SDE figure is lower than what you'd be paid by someone else, then it's a hobby because you're literally contributing your own labor to make this thing happen. And if there's a surplus, if if you're earning more than you would as an employee, then then we have a real going concern. There's actually some kind of return on investment for being the owner of that business beyond the work you're doing every day. But here's the crazy thing. And I mentioned the opacity of the market and how everyone brings different things to the table. There are people lined up and willing to buy hobbies and jobs because of their personal circumstances. So 
I deal all the time with C-suite people in big Fortune 500 companies that have very high incomes that want to go buy a fishing lodge in the mountains. And it has a hobby level of income. Mm-hmm. But they see that they'll be able to work in something they enjoy much more and be able to go fishing almost every day. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, you work with somebody who maybe is a newcomer to the country and there's some kind of language issue or their professional credentials aren't recognized in the new country. They need an income. And so they're more than happy to look at what you or I might consider a job, but it's going to give them some kind of cash flow that they can live on when their access to the employment market is inhibited because of their situation. And so and that's what I mean by there's there's all kinds of different people coming in and out of this market. And for sellers, it's really important to understand what it is you're bringing to the market. Um, I'll deal a lot with people in small hospitality businesses and they'll, they'll say, oh, I heard so-and-so sold their business for this multiple. I'm like, well, that could be, but did you then break down their deal and find out how they received the money? A lot of times you might hear at the golf club that someone sold their business for a million dollars, but no one then says, oh yeah, what were the terms of the deal? How much did you get on closing? Did you have to hold a note on that? Like, And are there any contingencies on that note? Did you have to warranty the revenue over the next five years? Is there a clawback if something happens? Like, nobody gets into that conversation, but often those deals have all of those features, right? right. And so I'll explain to some of these small hospitality uh, business owners, I'll say, look, you know, you don't produce enough cash flow to, to make someone get excited enough to leave their corporate job to come and buy this place. The buyer who's going to buy this place is somebody from the industry. And so that means they are a bartender, waiter, cook right now. And as you can imagine, that person doesn't have a lot of savings and they may not have the greatest credit you know, foundation for, from which to borrow. So for that bartender, to be able to come and make a deal with you to buy your establishment. And maybe, maybe it is a bar and the banks don't want to finance it anyway. Um, This is what your deal is going to look like. You're, you're going to have to take whatever down payment that they can put together, or maybe they can raise from their family and friends. And then you're likely going to get paid over time and setting those expectations um, by explaining what a deal is really going to look like can sometimes send sellers into a different direction that might actually be better for them. So, um, gotta have, be, an, gotta, gotta have an example of that. Okay. <laughs> well, well, for example, if it's really time sensitive and, and I'm saying you're going to have to finance it anyway, and it may take six to nine months to find the buyer and they have something more pressing then it might give them the information they need to know. Okay. I need to close and liquidate. Because I can, I can control the timeline on that. Okay. Right. So, so I can say, this is our last day and I can then put, you know, some of my bar on Craigslist or whatever, and I can try to get whatever cash I can out of it because I know that because of this personal issue in my life, I need it all wrapped up by the end of the quarter, or I want to have it all wrapped up by the end of the year. Cause I want this to be the last you know tax return I submit for my, for my entity or what have you. And so the, the information and the proper understanding and perspective of what the business is going to do in the market can help people make better decisions for themselves versus just this idea that, well, you know, this guy claims he can sell it for a lot of money. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with him and then end up in this indefinite timeline of trying to find a buyer. But for people who really plan ahead, the most ideal circumstance for most business owners is to develop their own buyer from within. Right. Because then you, you can develop you know, that person and teach them the skills and have them grow through the ranks, maybe bring them on as a junior partner. Once somebody is in a business as a junior partner for a couple of years, then all of the banks will consider them an insider. Right, which gives them a much better advantage in, in being able to borrow to buy the balance of the business. And the owner in that circumstance is able to um, make a plan at least for some kind of timeline. So you can do that if you're forward thinking and you're thinking about your retirement. That's one in five reason, if you remember from, from the list I gave earlier. Sure. Yeah, retirement's only only one, you know. Uh, many of the things that happen, those opportunities that create themselves are, like you said, not necessarily planned for, just things that life throw at us. And then you're just trying to make the best you can out of a bad decision or out of bad circumstances, you know? Yeah. Well, especially, you know, like family stuff. Um, 
And, and sometimes businesses end up going up for sale because of a, a divorce, for example. And there are some cases the, the spouses work in the business together. And because it represents such a big chunk of their net worth, they, they've got their own homes, they're getting a divorce, they're, they're splitting up and they're showing up every morning to work at the same place. And, you know, that may not be an ideal situation for the business. And they, they, neither one of them wants the burden or has the ability maybe to buy the other out. And they agree that the best thing is just to like bring it to market so they can, they can separate their ways. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. So very interesting stuff. I, you know, um, I've always been a believer that, um, you know, too many industries, whether it's financial services, real estate, business brokerage, whatever it is, are, are um, you know, kind of transaction and volume based. Right. And I've and I've always believed that the people that get better outcomes are the ones that um, are focused on education and execution. Right. Don't do more transactions, do better transactions. Right. You don't need more clients. You need the right clients that do business mm-hmm. with you the right way. And I think the world today, the way, you know, with people I meet on podcasts and other professionals, you know, there's too many people in the world today who think that more is better and more isn't better. Better is better. More is just more, right? And that That's may true. sound that may sound oversimplistic, but I think it's this real incongruency with what's going on and why people aren't happy in the world is they're thinking more is better and more is not always better. You know, it's it's just more hassles, you know, more stuff to deal with, maybe more things that are outside of your control that you that you can't handle. So I don't know. Well, I, I can tell you that. Um, I meet a lot of people who get into business and, you know, some people fail in business. There's a high failure rate in small business, but the people who are successful, very few of them ever sell their business to go get a job. You know, the, the, the lifestyle and freedom aspects that can be delivered by a business are, are indisputable. And for a lot of the buyers that I meet, um, you know, you, you might get the impression that uh, from some of the stuff that you see online, that people want to buy a business because it's all about the money and the lifestyle and all, and all that kind of stuff. And that's not been my experience from people who do deals. Uh, people who actually do deals are looking for either an increase in freedom. So they want to leave a corporate environment where they don't have a lot of control over their time and they want to be the boss so they can dictate how many hours or they work or how many days a month they spend in hotels traveling around or whatnot. Um, I also see a lot of people do it out of an expression of personal development. So a leveling up move, right? Where they they feel like they should be heading further in their career. They want to do more. They want more responsibility, but for whatever reason, they're having an, uh, they're unable to, to progress in a, in a corporate environment. And they finally realize I need to be writing my own rules, which means coming over to the world of business. And so the, you know, it's funny because, you know, you, if you what if you look at, uh, you ever look at Instagram, if you look at those kinds of things, you know, you see like the Lamborghinis and all that kind of stuff. I was just at an event in Cleveland where there were a, a hun- over a hundred individuals, all owning holding companies with multiple operating firms. And I can tell you not one person showed up in a Lamborghini, you know, it was it, very uh, open, friendly, helpful, fun people um, who take great pride in being operators. And some of the biggest or most common conversations that were coming up was about how these people positioned themselves and how they felt about the amount of employment they created in their communities. Right. I mean, that this is something that these people took take a great deal of pride in is that they, they see themselves as being part of what allows their town, village, city to be successful and do well because they're able to, to keep the work in their area, et cetera. Um, and, and that's what business is. I mean, business is simply serving each other in an efficient way that allows you to be able to provide for yourself. And the, the cornerstone of it is that you deliver the value because as long as you are doing well by your customers, they're just going to keep coming back and they're going to send their friends. Right. And, and so you create this positively virtuous cycle and it means that the customers benefit from whatever it is you're doing for them because they're getting it either cheaper, faster, or better quality than they can get on their own. 
and you benefit because you're able to make them happy. So to me, business is a, is a, is a virtuous endeavor. And uh, there's so much positive that comes out of it. A lot of the times, you know, in the media, business is portrayed as somehow bad. And maybe there are certain businesses that are not as good. But um, for me, if you don't want to be helpful and provide value and be a good person, it's probably not something you should get into. Like, I, I think you'd be squeezed out eventually by, by the systems. Well, you know, look, I've a good expression I've heard over the years that I think makes sense. Every time I say it, you know, value creation is wealth creation, right? Mm -hmm. Many people can't figure out how to create value for somebody, but yet get into a business or industry. And, you know, they, they're like, Oh, my competitive strategy is, is I'm going to cut prices. I'm going to cut fees. I'm going to be the cheapest low cost provider. I'm like, but low cost and, and, and providing real value isn't the same thing. And, and you know, like if, if you go into a marketplace, like the real estate industry is one example of that today, right? You're starting to see, you know, a great real estate agent makes a 6% commission. They figure out how to get 3% on both sides of the transaction because they can demonstrate value, list it, bring buyers, everything else, right? An okay real estate agent gets 3% because they can justify their value and they're on one side of the trade. And then you've got all these other real estate agents that are like, well, I'll take the listing at one or one and a half. And, you know, we'll offer three on the other side. I mean, you know, they're, they're doing it for less and they're hoping they can make it up in volume. Right. And I just don't, I don't see that to be a sustainable long-term business model because nobody wants to work themselves to death for really low margins. Um, but the world hasn't taught everybody how to go out and create value, um, you know, which for, for their seller or their buyer, whoever it is, which in turn creates value for themselves. Right. Um, yeah. View it that way. But I think one of my biggest takeaways from the podcast today, and I want to thank you for being here. We're, we're kind of running a little low on time is there's some middle manager sitting in a cubicle at a company right now that identifies as a business owner and, you know, they can take some steps and educate themselves and they can put themselves in the game. And there's an SDE with your name on it out there. Yeah. And you know, the reason why people end up in the, with the idea of buying a business is because a lot of the people you just described, they're, they're like maybe middle-aged and they have a mortgage and they're married and they've got some kids. And the biggest risk in business is finding enough customers quickly enough so that you can hit your break even point and start making some money. This is why so many startups fail, right? New businesses. And that's what you get when you buy a business. You get customers already in place, employees who know their jobs. You get the products, services, and hopefully some of the systems to make it work properly. And on top of that, you know, there's usually a transition period. So you get some training and coaching from the seller on how things should go. And the, the biggest upside potential, what I tell people to chase after. I said, think about your own experience, think about your own background and what you know about and what you can bring to a business. Look for a business that you have an understanding of that you know you'll be able to manage that is making money, but has problems that you know how to fix because you can buy that business. And on day one, you're going to be making money. And then on day 200, 300, whenever you get those problems sorted out, you're going to get more cash flow, and, and you're going to be able to benefit entirely from that increase in value because you, you pay for a business based on what the seller brings to you, what you, what you get on closing day. But the reason why you buy one business over another is because you can see how you can increase its value long-term. Yep. One of the, you bring up an interesting point, um, a book that I read recently got turned on somehow, um, buy then build. Uh, many people think about starting a new business, but not everybody thinks about, well, what other business could I buy for basically the same startup cost that it would cost me to build it from scratch, right? And then leverage what I know through an existing customer base and some of an, of an, of an ecosystem or a structure that's already built. So I'm not starting from day one, putting together the foundational blocks. Um, I have some understanding of this business. I'm walking in, there's already customers, there's already cash flow. I'm plugging into that. And then I can use my excitement and enthusiasm because I'm new in this and grow it instead of it kind of as the, that older owner that we talked about before that's lost the enthusiasm, having it kind of die on the vine a little bit. So I, I found that to be a really interesting book for anybody that's listening, buy then build. 
you know, you know, there are all kinds of examples I've seen personally of people who've been in a business for a long time and their business is providing great for them. And there's all kinds of opportunities that they just have no interest in chasing. You know, it, there are all these studies about uh, how salary and earnings relate to happiness. And I guess there's a, there's a direct correlation between happiness and money up to about $80,000 a year. And then there's a departure. Yeah. And then, you know, because once you can satisfy all the real needs that you have, then, then it's like, well, you know, how do you value being able to go camping for a weekend? Like, how, like there's all these other things. And so I've seen many people who have a couple hundred thousand dollars of income from their business and they, they know how you could double it in a few years, but they don't want to do the effort. Yep. You know, they're happy where they are. Yep. And oftentimes sellers will tell you, what could be done with the business. Now, you don't want to pay them based on that. No. You don't want to pay for potential. That's a whole different story. But um, there, obviously, there are ways, particularly with new tools, new technology, new ways of doing business, that sometimes someone of an older generation just didn't want to take the time to learn. They were comfortable. They were happy. They didn't want to buy the new software, implement the new whatever. So yeah, I get it. Well, David, it was great. Thanks for sharing so much. I think everyone will find this extremely informative. How would listeners find you? What's the best way to find you? Yeah, sure. So, you know, if you're interested in learning more about this kind of stuff, uh, head over to davidcbarnett.com. It's my main blog site. And every week I put up a new video. You can click through to the YouTube channel, subscribe there. But I've got an email list and I send out an email every day where I talk about something to do with buying, selling, financing, or managing a small or medium-sized business. So if, if you're interested in that main street space, you know, I've, I've, I think I've got about 500 videos. I've been putting up videos since 2014. So there's literally tons of stuff that you can, uh, you can just enjoy and absorb. And if you want to learn more, I've got other stuff that, that uh, you'll hear about if you watch my videos. Good stuff. Well, David, I appreciate you spending the time with us today, everyone. Tax Alpha Podcast. This was David Barnett, um, reformed business, bo- uh, wait, recovering business broker, but it sounds like he's found his true mission and cause. And it sounds like he's helping people, you know, uh, buy and sell businesses the right way through some education. And uh, I think that's the important way. So get informed. There's plenty of opportunity out there. But thanks again for listening to this episode. And until we see you next, next time, this is Matt Chancy signing off with the Tax Alpha Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.